of the night. I'm a media assistant slash IT admin, just another working person for the capitalist society. Our guest for today is Mladen, Bosnian Serb. Hi. Hi, man. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. we were asking for uh, like somebody Serbian to come into the show, and it took like two minutes after posting, and uh, we got you for the show, so thanks a bunch. Our film is... By far the most challenging, explosive, most complicated episode we have ever had the pleasure of doing here. It's about the Bosnian war. Henrik, my dear co-host, what's wrong with me? I, I think you are simply just self-destructing. Only me? All right. Good. Well, well you, you are the bastard who pushed this film and this episode onto us once again. <laughs> like... like we 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 have a nasty behind the scenes history here on the podcast where Kari gets the fancy idea of covering extremely hard films <laughs> on, on the podcast, and I'm the poor sap who has to suffer for basically Kari's enthusiasm. Well, that's good. You should push yourself, guys. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, you can also punch me, Henrik, if you want. That's okay. I probably deserve it. Yeah, it's it's good to say that we are miles apart. Though. Of each other. <laughs> exactly. But uh, moreover, we do not have like a Bosniak to counter any possible claims by our Bosnian Serb in this podcast. So. No, we, we yeah. honest to God, we did try to get a guest from basically each ethnicity. From Bosniaks, from Bosnian Serbs, and from Bosnian Croats for this episode. But, well, we have not always been completely successful on getting guests here for this episode. The only kind person who actually answered our calls and agreed to be on this podcast is Milan. And the like 10 or 12 other Serbs, I might add. I don't think, I don't think the crowds are actually even featured in the movie, so... I... Yeah, they ain't, they ain't. But they were still part of the, yeah, of the conflict, yeah, yeah, which true. is covered in the film and simply because of that and simply because well because it's very much a hot potato still the topic and therefore just to be as respectful and as unbiased as we possibly can be yeah i'm gonna gonna do my best but i'm probably not gonna be coming off as, as the most objective person so sorry in advance no yeah that that's completely okay i mean most of the Necessity lies with me and Kari since we are two Finns and completely outside of the region and even outside of this conflict. And because of that, we feel that we have to be extremely kind of respectful and understanding when it comes to covering things like, for example, the Bosnian war. Yeah, Yeah, and make no mistake, we do our best to be so and we have no intention to have any bad intention here. And uh, there's one more thing, actually. This is, after all, a, a very much a Serbian film. I think our guest would agree with that assessment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Serbs made it, if you, if that's what you mean. Uh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly and, that. 
Yeah. And, and, and so far we have invited only the person from that country where the particular film was made. And looks like we intend to follow on that path. And in that uh, sense, it makes sense. But if any Bosniak wants to make any comments later on to this, perfectly feel free to contact us. We'll be happy to check out a film from Bosnia that you deem coming definitely from Bosnia. And you're free to voice your views on whatever might happen in this episode. We can also open like a discussion panel on our social medias if somebody has the interest to write there. Does it sound fair, Mladen? Yeah, sure. Perfect. And you know, also to you, man, you know, if, if at any point Yes. Of this episode, you yourself feel that we are being insensitive, we are being uh, ununderstanding, or we are just, you know, blowing smoke out of our asses. Please feel free to cut in, correct us if we get something completely wrong here. And, you know, you are completely free to put us in our places <laughs> if you feel that that's necessary. Okay, I just want to emphasize that uh, I'm not really a historian or something like that, so the knowledge I have about the war is pretty much like, I don't know, what I experienced living in Bosnia and what I know, but that's not that much in depth. So I could be wrong in in, in some facts or or some things, but I'm gonna try and be as subjective as possible and, and not make some extreme claims or something like that. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it here at the laboratory premises. But I, I want to definitely point out that we, as hosts coming from Finland, we definitely don't have all the answers, most definitely not, and nothing of the sort. We are distant observers, me and Henrik. And please do note that this podcast is not pro-Bosniak, pro-Serb, pro-Croat, pro-Slovenian, pro-Communist, pro-anything. As Henrik has pointed out before, our sort of a tagline has been like brutally honest. Ergo, for me, that means honest in facts, but also personal opinions if there is like room for that hopefully we don't have to get too much into that we are more comfortable in this podcast with the facts that we do know and that's always good when there are tensions the thing about facts when it comes to boston civil war is that you're gonna hear like three versions of facts so (laughs) yeah yeah and that is precisely the problem i've voiced out with curry behind the scenes of this episode The fact that there are so many versions of the exact same events. So there is no unified one fact of what happened and how it happened when it comes to this conflict. And in this sense, I think we should like try to keep the history in a certain sense to a minimum because like there are different viewpoints. I understand that. But there are no different numbers. Like what actually happened there actually happened there. But then there are different numbers, and if they are from good sources, then by all means, let's use them. If we don't know anything, it's better to shut up, at least for my part. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, again, I guess we can tackle any topic about this, but then again, anyone who's listening to this needs to realize that we don't have all the facts, or neither does that person have all the facts who's listening. So, so don't get insulted yeah. if you hear something that, that's not in accordance to what you think happened. Yeah. Yeah, and something important to note also from my and Kari's end on the topic is that uh, me and Kari we both come from Finland and our coverage of the conflict has been Finnish news coverage when it happened and also British American news coverage and 
foreign political essays and stuff like that. And the thing behind all of these is that there is a certain narrative that has been built in West outside of Yugoslavia, outside of Bosnia. And me and Karri's understanding of the conflict originates from that narrative and all the different paths and different readings of that one narrative that has been pushed onto us is something that we ourselves have built by going through as many historical sources as possible. Should I assume that the narrative you speak about is where the Serbians are these e- evil maniacs who started everything? And Un- narrative. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, that's the, the, the precisely one. the narrative. That yeah, we have also been given. Yeah, I know. Well, I personally was, of course, a very little kid and didn't understand anything about the situation when it happened. But it's basically the Reuters narrative, whatever that is, in good and bad. It's a Reuters country, Finland. If you want to get the best source, you probably get something that is loaned from Reuters. Yeah, there is also Guardian and other major newspapers, which are heavily used in Finnish news media. As sources. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we have made it pretty clear that the intentions are <laughs> yeah, as honest. good. Uh, yeah, honest. We try our best here. But it's clear that everybody has their biases. It's hard to avoid that because we're human. Yeah. But um, I trust you can. We can all take responsibility for our own actions, and uh, hopefully somebody will correct us if they have like something that cannot be argued with. Uh, I'll be happy to get some statistics from anyone who is listening to this. All right. What I do know is that the whole subject of Yugoslavia and the breaking up of Yugoslavia and the ensuing conflicts, they make for some highly engaging reading. And once again, it's an extremely interesting and uh, extremely horrifying subject. Yeah. But now to take us back to what I said, now we are not a political podcast, but uh, simultaneously we agree that Every human has a tendency to their cognitive biases, especially something to look out for is the confirmation bias here, Henrik. So confirmation bias is when you favor things that confirm your existing beliefs. Another one is the belief bias, which means that if a conclusion supports your existing beliefs, you'll rationalize anything that supports it. Or even the backfire effect, which means uh, when some aspect of your core beliefs is challenged, it can cause you to believe in those even more strongly. Or this podcast might just get paralyzed by a massive uh, uh, Dunning-Kruger effect by the end. Meaning the more you know, the less confident you're likely to be. Yeah, that's true. But there's also the most obvious bias of today, I think. When it comes to war and nationalism, we're talking about a so-called in-group bias. It means that you unfairly favor those who belong to your group. That's very human. We presume ourselves fair and impartial, but in reality we automatically favor those who are most like us or belongs to the same groups. Happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, you can question yourself how much you want, but you're probably gonna end up being biased towards your nation or people. Probably. Yeah, that's the thing we always have to fight against as humans. Just to sum it up, try to imagine yourself in the position of those in outgroups, while you also kind of try to be dispassionate when judging those who belong to your in-groups. Okay, who is Mladen? What's your story? 
Well, I'm, uh, I don't really like the term Bosnian, sir, but that's probably the closest that would come to describing me in terms of nationality. I was born in Loznica, which is actually in Serbia, but I grew up in Zvornik. Well, not actually. I mean, I did grow up, but during the war, we had to move a lot. And we spent like two or three years in Panto in Serbia. I was born in 91, so like until 94, I was in Serbia. Then uh, when things kind of not really settled, but when Zvornik was, uh, I'm not sure if it reclaimed is the correct term, because I think Zvornik was Muslim before the war. But uh, then during the war, there was some, I think, general, I don't really know his rank, uh, named Arkan. He was a volunteer from Serbia. He kind of recaptured Zvornik for Muslims. So when it was safe to come back, we came back. And since 94 to like 2010, I was in Zvornik. Then I went off to Sarajevo to college. I studied uh, English language and literature four years. Then when I finished that, I came to to Novi Sad for my master's degree, and I liked it here, so I stayed in. At the moment, I'm in Novi Sad. Since I was born in 91, I was like, I don't know, three or yeah. four years old. I only caught some glimpses of the war, because as I said, when we got back to Zvornik, it was like already 93, 94, so I haven't witnessed anything that you usually witness in a war. All I can remember are like, we are playing in the street, and there are some sirens, and then we ran back to our home and just keep our head down, but I don't really remember any shooting or stuff like that. Okay. Do you know or do you think that you had a moderately peaceful childhood then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you disregard the fact that we had to move a lot during the war, but I don't really remember that. As I said, my earliest memories are of me playing in the street, and then I hear a siren outside, and then I ran back home, but that passes in like 20 minutes, so I go back outside and I play it. it, it it's it's pretty much normal. And then after the war, it was pretty much normal during the whole time till now. I mean, even now, okay. it's pretty much normal in Zvornik. There's not like tensions or stuff like that. I was in Serbia, and uh, the war wasn't taking place in the territory of Serbia, so it was pretty much safe. About the thing called Republika Srpska, literally translated Serb Republic. Yeah. So you come from this region as i understand it so please yeah. could, could you like explain to me and, and to our listeners like people who don't understand anything about the war what is well, the as I, this? as i said in the beginning I, i'm not really a, much of a historian and i don't really have that yep. in knowledge but uh what i but know and what pretty much everyone knows who lived in the republic of Srpska or when bosnia decided to split from yugoslavia in 92 they held a referendum which majority of serbs boycotted and then since only the Muslims came to that referendum and they wanted to split and they did it, then Serbs decided to create a Republic of Srpska, which is pretty much the Serbian entity in Bosnia. Yeah, so it's like a autonomous region inside Bosnia. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. So today we're discussing indeed a film that is based on extremely complicated faction war. So what we probably agree that is indisputable in any war is that People die, lives get destroyed, nobody wins, war is a racket. I think it could be nice to for our listeners to go like a like an overview of what the hell is the Bosnian War. So I will try to do my best, and if you have any pointers or points, you can uh, interrupt me at any point. Sure, go ahead. Great. I'm not sure if we're gonna mention the Ottoman Empire being here for five centuries. That's also important in terms of 
Muslim and Ser- Serbian relations. Yeah. At least from my viewpoint, it's important to, to know this. They're kind of isolated here. I mean, Muslims, you don't really have an Islamic country nowhere near. That was the World War One and World War II atrocities. And there was a Serb genocide perpetrated by the Ustashi regime in the independent state of Croatia between 1941 and 1945, meaning the Croatian and Serb relations weren't exactly very nice after that. Croats helped Nazis and persecuted Serbs. That didn't really help either, the relations. Then we cut to the Bosnian War, which is part of the breakup of Yugoslavia. There was this uh, Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia from 1945 to 1992. The nation was a socialist state and federation governed by the League of Communists of Yugoslavia and made up of six socialist republics, which is Bosnia and Herzegovina, once again, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, Slovenia, with Belgrade as its capital. And two autonomous provinces, I think, were within and Kosovo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, also important to note. Yeah, I, I actually have it here, so fear not. Yeah. So these two autonomous provinces, Kosovo and Vojvodina. Yeah. Serbs, often Eastern Orthodoxes, Croats, often Catholics, Slovenians, often Catholics. Yeah, the main belligerents in this conflict were Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina and self-proclaimed Bosnian uh, Serb and Bosnian Croat entities within Bosnia and Herzegovina called Republika Srpska and Herceg Bosnia. Yeah. So there were three factions in the Bosnian War, once again. The Bosnian faction, the Croats and the Serbs. So the Bosnians are loyal to the Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Croats are loyal to Croatian Republic of Herceg Bosnia and Croatia, Serbs are loyal to the Republika Srpska in Serbia. Yeah, and uh, maybe you can tell us something about Tito, or maybe Henrik can. Yeah, I do know the influence the man had, and the kind of a devastating effect that his death had kind of to the sovereignty of the Yugoslavia as an area. Yeah, to give it simply, Tito was the leader of the communist Yugoslavia, and he was ruling from 1945 to 1980 when he died. And right after that, things began to crumble in Yugoslavia and people started to get more democratic ideas or aspirations to get more democratic. And of course, with that became more nationalism because there were so many different factions that made up the whole Yugoslavia. Of course, with Tito, there is also important to note that as far as I've understood, there was very strong economical growth up to the 1980s, which was still under Tito's rule. Uh, the thing is, uh, from what I gathered about Tito, I'm not sure how, how real was that economical growth, because if you read about Tito, you probably read that he was uh, he was leader of the non-line movement. So he wasn't aligned either to the, the NATO or to the USSR, to the Russians. So he was kind of getting money infusions from both sides. And yeah, that, that he was, and I have also come to understand that a lot of that money was debt. Yeah, yeah. Which incurred in the 70s. When he died, time came for payback, so so that's why everything crumbled pretty much. Not really, not everything, but he was getting money, and then when he died, that money was supposed to be returned. Yugoslavia couldn't really give that money back, and the economy crumbled, and when economy crumbles then that's when the nationalistic sentiments 
most easily arise. Yeah. So there are factions, there are Croats, Serbs, Bosniaks, etc. And now Slobodan Milosevic takes control in the early 1980s and then basically gained a large amount of control of Yugoslavian territory, as I've come to understand it. What do you mean and control? I've, you mean like popularity or literally control? Literally like political control of the areas. Well, and I mean, he was, he was president of the country, so in a way he should have the control of the country, right? And because of this, because of having a large proportion of control in the Yugoslavia region, this became a problem for the Bosniaks. And this is why they wanted to have more discussions of how we should kind of split this area. Well, it was it was a problem for not only Bosnians, but for Croatians, for, I don't know, pretty much everyone in Yugoslavia who wasn't a Serb to Yeah. I've also come to understand that he was manipulative and populistic leader. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah. I mean, to a degree, like every other leader who had, to some degree, an authoritarian rule over a country. I mean, there's no other way to rule a country in such fashion unless you're manipulative and populist. And uh, he definitely did use the past atrocities of the Croatians and the Nazi incidents and all that to his advantage to say that he didn't allow Serbians to quote-unquote lose again. Yeah, that's what made him famous. I think there was this phrase he said in, in Kosovo in, in, in late 80s. He said, I won't let anyone beat you, something like that. Right. At the same time, many don't have any nationalistic or identity-related ambitions. For example, many Bosniaks, meaning mainly Bosnian Muslims, many saw themselves mainly as Yugoslavians. And when these people saw the war broke out, they were taken by surprise that something like this could happen. Yeah. The characteristics of the war, bitter fighting, indiscriminate shelling, ethnic cleansing, systematic mass rape. Yeah, and to be brutally honest here, since we are talking about war crimes, in Bosnian war and in Yugoslav wars. Yeah. Something that needs to be noted is also that Finland took part in Yugoslav wars, mostly through peacekeeping operations, which were conducted at least partly with cooperation with NATO forces. But if you count in also paramilitarists and mercenaries, in that case... Also, some Finns took part in the war crimes, for example, the Bosnian War. Finns did leave Finland to... To fight for... To work as mercenaries in Bosnian War. Most notable case for that... Of course, we are talking about individual Finns here, and not Finland as a nation. But, yeah, we we did have... In Bosnian War, there were Finnish mercenaries. Fighting for Muslims or, like, for both sides? The first guess would be, of course, fighting on both sides. But, like I said, we are talking about individuals, so to say it's certain is extremely hard. I have understood that the Bosniaks were ill-prepared for the war in in general, and they didn't have the firepower that the Serbs had, at at least in the beginning. Well, yeah, because, because, I mean, uh, the the army of Yugoslavia was... Was, was the president, and the yeah. army was kind of under Serbian control, so a big majority of accessories and, and whatever there is in the army, it was under Serbian control, while Muslims pretty much didn't have access to that, and all they did have was what the, the USA would bring them. But to go back to what you said about Serbians perpetrating uh, all the rapes, that's just not, not, not well, true. N- not, not all. Well, but, the majority... Uh, 
I have just pretty vague uh, quotes like uh, 12,000 to 20,000 women were raped, most of them Bosniak. And then the same thing repeats in, uh, wait, 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 over 100,000 dead, mainly Bosniaks. It doesn't tell me really, really anything, but that's what it says. You can't really uh, trust those figures. and I'm not saying that uh, I'm at all correct now by saying this, but the fact that the troops had the support of Slobodan Milosevic, would you agree that they probably were able to make more havoc than the Bosniaks without such of a engine running? Yeah, in the, it, war? In the beginning, definitely. Okay. Later, later on, not so much. I mean, it, it comes down to just like... You read something somewhere, I read some. I mean, because in the end, I don't even have first-hand experience. I mean, because I was a kid, and I haven't really witnessed war at any real scale. Yeah. So, I, I mean, my, my father wa- was fought in the war, but he never spoke much about it. So, just to run through the, the war. So, 1991, occasional hostilities already started in September 1991. Croatian National Guard was... On the move, making blockades, etc. Yugoslavia's confederational system got weaker at the end of Cold War. The Communist Party League of Communists of Yugoslavia was losing its grip, as mentioned. 1992, uh, the war came into full force. The Bosnian Serbs uh, proclaimed the Republic of the Serbian People in Bosnia-Herzegovina and later Republika Srpska, but did not officially declare independence. Arbitration Commission of the Peace Conference on Yugoslavia in 11th January 92. Bosnia-Herzegovina stated that the independence of Bosnia-Herzegovina should not be recognized because the country had not yet held a referendum on independence. Slovenia and Croatia then shortly after left the Republic, and uh, then Socialist Republic of Bosnia-Herzegovina and passed a referendum for independence on 29th of February 1992. During the referendum on March 1st, Sarajevo was still peaceful apart from a famous shooting on the Serbian wedding. Bridegroom's father was killed, priest was wounded. Bosnian Serbs rejected the referendum, they in fact boycotted that vote as mentioned. Therefore, Bosnian Serbs mobilized troops to secure an ethnic Serb territory. The army was led by Radovan Karacic. It was supported by Serbian government of Slobodan Milosevic and the Yugoslav People's Army, JNA, which was probably kind of used uh, kind of used in the war because they were like a communist army, right? Yeah, but then again, I mean, people who were in the, that army were Serbs. It's not like, it's not like okay. a Muslim would fight for that army <laughs> against the Muslims. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying there weren't cases, but I mean, it's logical that Muslim won't go fighting against other Muslims just because he was in the Yugoslav army. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, this is uh, far from uh, easy to understand war. So the war was first between Yugoslav and army units. Those transformed into Army of Republika Srpska, or VRS, versus Army of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, also known as ARBIH, mostly Bosniaks, versus Croatian Defense Council, HVO meaning Croats. Then skip to 93, tensions between Croats and Bosniaks escalated to Croat-Bosniak war in early 1993, so not only Bosnian war, also Croat-Bosniak war. And 1994, Yugoslav's people army, JNA, was initially superior in firepower, but they lost momentum because Bosniaks and Croats allied themselves against Republika Srpska, so they created Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Following the Washington Agreement, Pakistan resisted the UN's ban on supply of arms and assisted Bosnian Muslims. And 95, the U.S. were first reluctant to join the conflict, from what I listened to the interviews and stuff. But then uh, we have Srebrenica massacre. Before the war, people were working in the town in harmony. This is seen as the event in which UN failed to prevent this from happening because it was supposed to be the demilitarized zone, but it didn't quite work out. 
NATO intervenes after Srebrenican Markale massacres, with the Markale massacre being considerably smaller massacre, as I can see in the numbers at least. Then came the Operation Deliberate Force, targeting Army of the Republika Srpska, which was the key in ending the war. There was Markale markets shelling, Markale massacre carried out by the uh, Republika Srpska, targeting civilians during the siege of Sarajevo in the Bosnian War. Everybody's still not sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, just listening. And like, okay. When I ask you, when you read that stuff and you like read it, that NATO in 95 bombarded the, the army of Republic Srpska, uh, I mean, when, when you think about it, is there any, any sense to that? Why, why should NATO do that? Like, Bosnia isn't a, a member of NATO or anything like that, especially in that time. Why should it, that, that be a leg- legitimate course of action for them to, to come here and bombard whoever they want under some pretext that Serbians are committing crimes? Yeah, my first thought would be, how the hell is it their business? But yeah, again, why, why, uh, and how? Yeah, whichever the case was, whichever, what kind of atrocity would it ever be? It's still outside of NATO, so yeah, ludicrous. But yeah, I'm not the professor of this subject <laughs> in any way. Peace negotiations took place in Dayton, Ohio, and were finalized in 21st of November '95. War officially ended after signing the so-called General Framework Agreement for Peace in Bosnia and Herzegovina in Paris on 14th December 95. And result was 100,000 people were killed during the war, according to estimates in 2008 anyway. 2.2 million were displaced, 12,000 to 20,000 women were raped, most devastating conflict in Europe since World War II, all things considered. So considering that, why the hell is this war not talked about in primary education? You mean for you guys? For us guys, yeah. Henrik, do you remember anything about this war during primary school? Uh, not in primary school. When the conflict was ongoing, there of course was the media coverage. And after the war ended, there was a short time period when the Finnish academia kind of took an eye on the Bosnian territory and the effects that the war had had oh. in that area. but. Outside of that, there really was not that close I paid to the Bosnian War. Then again, of course, I was on my first class when the Bosnian War was going on. And in 95, I, I was on the second class of primary school. So, well, there's not much time to change the uh, history books for the classes <laughs> in yeah. all, all of that time. But I don't know what the situation is now, but this is a darn important topic that something like this could happen in Europe in such a recent time. Yeah, it's it's funny when you think about it. You you would think that something like that can happen. That it's impossible right. to happen. And even now, like when I look around me and stuff like that, it, it seems like it's impossible to happen. But then you you, you just have stuff happen like all of a sudden. I wouldn't say it's possible for the Ukrainian war to to, to happen like a couple of years ago, but it happened. And I think anything can happen if the major forces of the world countries want it to happen. So. I mean, yeah. it, it, it comes down to that, and people really aren't asked about anything. Yeah, one thing that may play factor in how little Bosnia and Yugoslav wars are together are being treated in media, in movies, and, for example, educational books, maybe partly that, as a conflict, it's extremely hard one to approach, since it's so incredibly complicated. The Background politics run 
decades, if not even centuries, before the Yugoslav Wars even first break out, and even during the wars, it's very hard to keep track on who sided with who, who did what, what, what happened when and where, and also the kind of a politics that ran behind the Yugoslav Wars or an individual conflict of those wars. It's very hard to approach, especially someone who comes outside of Yugoslav. And me, a little researcher from Finland, having like 50 tabs open of different subjects all related to this goddamn war. So yeah, it's something that I cannot research in like two days. I would need like, I don't know, two years to do this episode. But as this is a weekly format, we do it like this. And fortunately, we have a guest to kind of help us out here. Yeah, but well, like, if you want to summarize, I think you, you can trace pretty much any conflict last 200 years to Russia and USA taking sides of two factions in a country and pushing their own interests. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of being superficial here, but I think you, you can say that. How come that uh, all these people live peacefully under Yugoslavia and then suddenly old friends become arch enemies? Do you have any input on that? Well, I mean... From my viewpoint, it's all about propaganda. I mean, you should never underestimate the power of propaganda. Like, I think it, it all started like the beginning of the 90s when the socialist parties lost to the ethnic nationalist parties in all of the countries of ex-Yugoslavia, except for maybe like in Serbia and Montenegro. And then when ethnic nationalist party takes hold in your country or your region, and they're pushing for the nationalism, then it's kind of easy for people to get caught up in it and forget all about how good they had it when they weren't fighting each other. I don't know if we should be going more in depth about this, but it probably can be traced back to USA wanting this because Yugoslavia was socialist and they wanted to kind of destroy that in a way. Mm. So what better way than to split the nations inside of Yugoslavia in that way? Yeah, it's a kind of a interesting point and maybe this is what often happens though that when you break the communist held region then people start to get democratic ideas but the unfortunate side effect is that people can get very nationalistic ideas yeah i mean and this can send people to bloodshed yeah i mean nationalistic rhetoric is really strong i mean you have a scene in the movie you remember that scene when there's that family eating in their backyard and a Serbian fella, I'm not sure what's his name. I think his name is Petar or whatever. He's, he's that, that TV show or something like that where the broadcaster is saying how Serbs are being uh, killed and stuff like that. And he immediately gets in a way triggered and he just decides to walk to Belgrade to volunteer to fight the war. So propaganda mm. is really, it's really hard to resist. Yeah. So we could also say that the media was extremely crucial in changing people's views towards each other. Yeah, definitely. But there's also, I mean, it's not like there wasn't a foundation there. I mean, it it goes way back for Serbs and Muslims and and Croats here on this this area. Yeah. So it's easy to spark up that. Yeah, one thing that kind of came up when looking into Bosnia and the Yugoslav wars, as a subject was kind of that before the starting point of the Yugoslav wars, you kind of continuously find a new, either a conflict or or a political ideology or some political hostilities or something like that that precedes the 10-day war. All the way resulting to the years like 
even before the World War One. Well, yeah, I mean, the Turks came to this area in like, I don't know, 14th century, so yeah, you, you can trace it back to then, even then, I mean. Ottoman Empire, yeah. Yeah, before then, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that there weren't any Muslims here, so. Yeah, anyway, a lot of history, a lot of baggage from atrocities that was done in World War One, World War Two. Yeah. And media and then the political establishments affecting different factions and their feelings towards one another. At least in the beginning, it was extremely hard to understand easily like what is going on in this war in the sense that there's so many little factions that are fighting against each other. Then one group joins another group and makes the group bigger. And then, yeah. And then pretty much everyone joins up against Serbs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was an... Uh, this is a pretty much a random internet comment about about the whole war, but I thought it made some interesting points. So about the Boston Civil War. Yeah, it's from Nicole Dashiell. She says, "I'm tired of group affiliation determining your opinion. I'm American and, and grew up with Bosnian refugees, so I sympathize with them. I'm half Greek and grew up with Serbian refugees, so I sympathize with them also. My town is full of refugees from all over the world, and my heart has hurt for all of them." Sometimes they even came from opposite sides. But what's beautiful is because they were toddlers when they came, there was no hate between them at school. Serbs and Bosnians got along simply in mutual sorrow. Is it not possible to love humankind and condemn bad people no matter what group they come from? End quote. It so, is, but it's, it's easier to, to not do that. And <laughs> to favor your, your own side. But I mean, uh, you can always make that argument and say like everyone's going to side with their people or like if, if you're neutral, like if you're American, if you grew up with, I don't know, you said Greek refugee or something like that, you're going to side with Serbia. But then again, uh, if you're an, an intelligent person and you, you're an educated person and you have the ability of thinking critically, and then you just think about it, if Muslims were supported by the USA so much in the war, then you kind of begin to think, are they the ones who are in the right? I mean, do you know anyone who's supported by the USA that's like the right, if you, if you know what I mean? The USA literally supports only those factions which will help them establish their own presence in the area and for their own benefit. So they don't really give a shit about about human rights or democracy. I mean, I don't know. It, it could be that it's only common knowledge for, for Serbs, but uh, do you guys share that opinion like in, in the West? Well, do you agree that... USA will only intervene in the areas where they have their personal interest and help uh, those factions that would help them get there. Well, definitely they had an interest in Iraq that was not related to the 9-11. Definitely they have right now a very high interest in Venezuela. I mean, they have very high interest in Venezuela. So and why? Well, because it seems that the president that they say won the elections... He is willing to privatize the oil, which would be beneficial for United States. That's yeah. the crux that I got from that. The so. question is, do you, do you know a single case three, where USA intervened without having their own personal interest? Uh, I think it's really doubtful that there's such a case. And if there's no such a case, I mean, what are the chances of them intervening on the right side? I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to go first, Kari, or will I? Well, I mean, it depends. Yeah, our guest has 
given us a question and we have to answer that. So not necessarily because uh, I don't know if I'm qualified enough to answer this properly because there's always the different viewpoint that you can get from different media and unfortunately I am not educated enough to yeah, give 100% on that. I'm not I'm not asking for educated guess I'm asking for what do you think in terms of if uh, if you say intervenes in some part of the world and uh, they help one faction do you think that faction is in the right? What would be your first guess if you say intervenes somewhere? Do, definitely do, they have some uh, ulterior motives most yeah. likely i mean to try to diffuse the question a little bit more carefully finland has pretty close ties or wants to keep pretty close ties with the us and because of this finland as a nation is kind of accepting to the american narrative which is that they are the kind of a just pure-hearted word police who is just interested in protecting the innocent and the civilians and upholding the democracy around the world. That is kind of a, one of the underlying sentiments that I more often than not feel I run into in Finland. But personally, when you look at the conflicts where the US has taken part, one way or the another, you can always find some motive to take action in the said conflict. Be that to oppose communism, be that national resources, or, you know, beat anything. Behind taking part in every conflict, there, in my opinion, there always is underlying reasons. Maybe political, maybe resource, whatever, but there always are those. Nobody takes part in a conflict simply out of the kindness of their heart yeah so to say and then when you think about it when they intervene there's like usually two sides two factions in the country that they're intervening in and there's a side that is fighting for their country and there's a side that's well not obviously but that's how it turns out in the end there's a side that, that's fighting to kind of split the country and destroy and they always take side of that other faction and the country always ends up being kind of a slave to them after it all ends and the country gets destroyed. Like, did you know a single country that had it better after the USA intervened that's prospering? Take Yugoslavia countries. I mean, we pretty much have it worse in every country here. Okay. Yeah, and you know, there is always the political sentiments that also carry in after the conflict. If you are a country that is in turmoil and another country, for example, US, rides in and helps you and you win the conflict through U.S. aid. After that victory, you kind of have this non-verbal political commitment to be more understanding towards America and its points and the politics that U.S. wants to make. Yeah, I mean, let's be careful with the terminology. Like, what was it, Mladen, that the word that you used that uh, whenever United States takes control of some area that then they are under the spell or whatever the term that you used was. Yeah, you, you lose your independence in a way. Yeah, well, then we need to define what kind of a control it is. Well, what, what your friend said, uh, kind of non-verbal agreement that you have to do whatever USA wants. Like, I think I, I watched a documentary, not sure what's the name. Or I mean, I'm not coming off here, like giving facts and giving some verifiable sources, but... Uh, I mean, I, I can track it down for you if you guys want. 
there was this uh, journalist. I'm not sure if if he was in Kosovo or something like that. He was he was asking Albanians whether they think that Kosovo government can do anything without the USA approval, and literally every single one of them said no, that they cannot do anything if the USA doesn't agree. And what what would you call a position like that, where you're a I mean, Kosovo is not a country, of course, but you're whatever autonomous region and you cannot do anything without some country in the entire whole other place in the world agreeing to that. Yeah, I guess that's a kind of a special region because it doesn't have the official recognition from everybody involved, everybody needed to make it a sovereign state, as I understand. So I, I don't know what to say about that that situation in particular. I think it's the same for for Bosnia or for Croatia and even to some degree Serbia now. But I think Serbia is the country who withheld the longest and kept their independence in that matter. That that's why we we suffered through all of this. <laughs> hmm. What does independence mean to you? When when you can as a country decide whatever you want and do whatever you want without relying on USA to approve that and to support you or relying to Russia to or China or whatever else the super force is. Yeah, these are gargantuan subject matters, of course. But when I say, what does the Finnish independence mean to me? Well, there's the classical side that you can say that, yeah, of course, we have the freedom of rights to do whatever the hell we please, basically, and have a democratic system and all that. But then there's the other side, that we are all interdependent on each other in some way. We are all controlled by the... Uh, Germany. The international banking system, for example. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is also the fact that since the world is combined by nations that interact and intersect with each other, and that creates kind of a pressure to avoid global judgment to be put on to you. You don't want to be. The one country, you don't want to be the North Korea of the world, which everyone gets a point their finger at and say that you are the one who is doing it wrong. I think we're the North Korea of the Europe, the Serbia probably, in the eyes of the West. <laughs> I don't know. At least we were in the 90s, not sure now with this government. Okay. Well, I'm, of course, extremely careful making that kind of a statement myself, seeing how I come from Finland, but From the ass end of Finland. Yeah, the ass end of Finland, to <laughs> top of that. But, yeah, I, I can, at least I can very well see where you come off with that point. Since, like it was already pointed out, the Serbs kind of were the go-to bad guys of the conflict. Well, yeah, I mean, literally you had USA presidents addressing people where they're literally saying Serbs are the bad guys, Serbs are killing them. I mean, that that's ludicrous. How can you do something like that? That's, that's insane to be so subjective and so biased. And, and yeah. you, you can find those those videos still up to the, like literally Clinton saying to the people of USA, we, we, we have to go there and help Muslims because Serbs are killing everybody. I mean, that's ludicrous. Like, whichever the war, whichever the case, there's always at least two sides of the story. And uh, be it North Korea versus South Korea or the Korean War, there are no sweethearts in war. Yeah, but be it my uh, bringing in my nationality, uh, but I always take side against the USA. So whoever USA is supporting, I'm betting that the other side has it right. Yeah, when it comes to traveling, I wouldn't second guess traveling to Serbia or Bosnia or any of that area. 
I don't know what's the situation after this podcast if I'm still welcome to Serbian post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe we have to apply for asylum in North Korea after this one. <laughs> it, it's it's much more chillin nowadays here. I mean, I don't really think anyone cares about most of the stuff now. I mean, at least like in the streets, you, you can find yeah. some heated discussions online, but in the streets, no one gives a shit about anything. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting notion to make because I was under the impression that the hostilities and the traumas and the bad feelings between the different ethnic group would still kind of uh, run very high under the surface and that there would still be the possibility that the violence and very physical hostilities could still break out someday in the future. I mean, it can break out, of course, but it comes down to why broke out the first time. I mean, if if the USA wants it, it has an interest in it, it's probably gonna break out. But if uh, people are asked, then it's not gonna. I mean, no, no. Why would anyone go to war and, and die? I mean, it doesn't make sense, and, and people know that. But if USA really wants it, or I mean, of course, I don't have to be right about this, but that's my point of view. If USA wants it, they can probably ignite the war again here quite easily. Not not, uh, not so easily because I don't know the. You have now Russia that is much stronger than it was 20 years ago, but it pretty much comes down to that. If USA wants it, or I don't know, USA combined with some other Western forces, they, they can probably start a war again here. But if you're asking the people, the majority is going to be like, no, why would we go to war? It's crazy. How do you yourself feel about the fact that because the whole peace agreement was a compromise for everybody, like nobody really liked it, but they did it anyway. So do you yes. think that there are like in- inherent tensions that cannot ever be removed well, unless uh, war would broke out from either side? Well, I mean, if it stays like this, I mean, I, I guess it's okay. Uh, even though, as you said, no one is satisfied with it. But uh, the tendency yeah. for Serbs in the Republic of Serbska is that they split from Bosnia and join the motherland. And the Muslims in Bosnia don't want that. Which I'm not really sure why not. Because like, Why do they want us with them in Bosnia since they hate us, we hate them? Uh, I mean, people don't really hate each other individual level, but like as nations, I don't know. So I'm not sure why they don't want us splitting. But yeah, if it came to that, that the Republic of Srpska tried to split on their own unanimously, it would probably, I'm not sure, but it, it could be war again. Mm. Other than that, uh, your friend asked about tensions. I don't think there are really any tensions in most of the areas. But then again, I haven't been in, in all the areas of the ex-Yugoslavia, so I don't know. As I said, I spent my childhood in Zvornik, where there's really only a few of Muslims, and there weren't really any tensions. I, I had a couple of them in my class. But then I'm going to come off as not a really objective here, but... This is my impression. Then when I went to, to college, mm. to Sarajevo, I, I was really getting the impression that I'm being looked upon as, as an outsider, like with hatred. Like if, if I was riding a bus in Sarajevo and Muslim fellow would see my praying bead on my wrist, he would like really stare at me creepily. That could be my impression just, but I, I don't think that's the same for Muslims in Belgrade. Like I don't think no one cares. I mean, if, if you're a Serb and you see a Muslim, I don't give a shit. But if you're a Muslim in Sarajevo and you see a Serb, I think it's a different story. I, I had a girlfriend in Sarajevo and she's also a Serb. And whenever I would come, we would like take a stroll to Sarajevo. She would always emphasize that I should be careful what I say. 
Would you like to explain to our listeners what is this thing that you have on your wrist? Oh, well, it's a praying bead. I mean, I'm not sure how... how uh, I think that's how Americans would call it. But it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's a kind of a wristband that's made with black cloth and has a cross in it. And if someone in this area sees you wearing it, he's going to know you're a Serb. I don't think Croats have them. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. But I know Serbs wear, wear those spring beads and Muslims don't wear them, definitely. So if you're in Sarajevo wearing a prayer bead on your wrist, you're going to be easily spotted as a Serb. Yeah, for sure. So what's the symbolism? or? Well, it's a cross. I mean, so if it's a cross, it symbolizes Christianity. I'm not even religious, but I just, I don't I, I carry it because I like it. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely not something to just uh, like uh, make the alarm bells go off for Bosniaks. Because it's easy to spot you as a Christian. It's not yeah, something yeah, that yeah. you want to broadcast, like, hello, yeah, I'm a yeah. Ser- Serbian. Yeah, Serbian. Uh, she also mentioned a couple of times, she advised me that I should maybe not be carrying my praying bead when we went into the city. Because Sarajevo is split in Serbian part and Muslim part. And mm. Serbian part is really small. I, I don't know, it's really small, tiny. And then the Muslim part is huge. And then if you want to have any sort of fun, you go to the Muslim park. There's uh, clubs and stuff like that. And so we would, most of the time, we would go to the Muslim part and she would just say, watch your tongue and maybe not bring your praying bead with you. Uh, since you said that you're originally from Bosnia, do you have a lot of, like, any contact? Do you have friends or other stuff like this that are Bosniaks? Yeah, I, 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 had, a, I had a friend uh, from high school. I mean, we got along well in high school. Then he went to Vienna after high school because that seems to be, like, the pattern for Muslims, <laughs> at least. Those I, I know about, like, they, they finish high school, then they go abroad, like, to Vienna or, or somewhere in Germany or stuff like that. Okay. Then uh, we kept contact for some time, and then he closed his Facebook, and we kind of lost contact. Oh. But we went along well. Great. Sorry, uh, I wanted to mention this other other guy uh, from Zvornik. He's also Muslim. He used to come to Video Cafe, where you play games. Mm-hmm. He was pretty much the only Muslim there. And we would tease him in a kind of playful banner, but there was never any trouble. Like, he didn't ever get beaten up for being a Muslim or ganged up. Mm-hmm. It would come down to individual teasing about it. Okay. Brotherly banter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This war definitely is not easy to sell for a Hollywood movie because it's so darn complicated. So I, I understand that. But in place of Hollywood simplicity, we have a Serbian film, which is inspired by Hollywood, though, I believe. Today's movie overview, ladies and gentlemen, and so on. What's this movie about? Synopsis. Who wants to do the synopsis? To put it, like, shortest way possible, it's about Serbian soldiers who got stuck in a tunnel. And are, they are surrounded by Muslim soldiers, and they can't get out. And we get to see the movie to one of the soldiers who survived, and to his memories, something like that. And what's your experience with this film? Have you seen it how many times? And I saw it once when I was like a kid, and I probably didn't get anything. I mean, most of the things, I probably just got some funny phrases. And then I watched it like five years ago, and I thought it was great. Then I watched it again when I agreed to, to join you guys on this podcast. Do you think it's the kind of a film that everybody quotes every once in a while on the streets? Yeah, definitely, dude. I mean, when I was a kid, literally everyone was, was quoting phrases from this movie. Like, all the kids. 
and I I didn't even know about some of the phrases until I watched it like five years ago. Then I remembered, oh, that's why they were saying that. Interesting. Yeah, I got this movie from alipris.com. It was the first time for me seeing it. I believe for Henrik as well. Yep. Did you guys find the decent subtitles? Because uh, when I was watching it, I couldn't find English subtitles for it. Uh, I think they were pretty good. At some points, I felt that something probably was lost in translation. Yeah, sometimes it also, I don't think, can even be translated. Yeah, that's normal. But uh, that's why we have also a guest here. So, <laughs> yeah, let's see what happens. History and background of this film. Well, once upon a time, there was this Bosnian war and then hence this movie. Yeah, I think uh, I think a guy named a journalist Vanya Bolic, he saw an, an article about so this is based on a true story and he saw an article about this so, so like a short article I'm not sure where so he went there and uh, he wrote a, a bigger article and then I think the d- director of the movie saw that he had a talk with the main actor so is that a real event that yeah yeah that, that, that's that's a real event that happened. Okay, yeah. This thing took place in real life, and then the movie was made about it. <laughs> okay, I, okay, I was so, not yeah. aware of that fact. Me neither. When seeing this film, I, I didn't know that. This is a true event that took place during 1992. Well, not probably not 100% the same as depicted in the movie, but... Okay. okay, okay. Right, good to know. And the movie actually was filmed during the war. Hmm. It, it was actually filmed like maybe 70 miles from my hometown. And I was probably there at the time. <laughs> yeah, there's this uh, town that they keep referring to. That I don't know about that. I know it was filmed in the territory of Ishigurada or nearby. I'm not, not sure about that town you're referring to. When I googled or goat, I found that uh, there's actually a place really called like that place that they keep referring to as the location for this cave. How do you, how do you spell it? Kurtalici. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's probably correct. That's like probably a village, and Vishigrad is is more of a town, but it's not that much bigger. Yeah. Do you think they also actually film it there? Oh yeah. The thing is, uh, yeah, they were filming it there, but I think the original event probably took place around that that village you, you just mentioned. Could be wrong okay. though. Yeah. What I understand from the title, Lepasela Lepagore. Or how would you say that? With the authentic accent? Yeah, yeah. Lepogore. Okay. I understand that this name, pretty village, pretty flame. Uh, I think, I think more, it's more more accurate translation would be pretty village burn beautifully. Right. And I understand it's a quote from a book that inspired the director. And uh, it's from uh, Louis Ferdinand Zelin's 1932 novel Voyage uh, au bord de la nuit. I don't speak French, but something like that. I don't know much about that. This that's the first time I'm hearing it. Okay, yeah. Cast and crew. Yeah, there's uh, Dragon Bielogrlitz, if I'm getting that at all correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, that was correct. <laughs> Serbian actor, director, and producer. If you have anything extra, you can say. Not really. Okay, Henrik. Nothing on the entire crew. I would even say that when it comes to Serbian films, this is the point where I lost my virginity. (laughs) So I am in no way familiar with Serbian movies at all. And, you know, therefore, I really don't have an input on the cast and crew category this time around. 
losing the virginity to first Serbian film. That's what happens when you get on board with a crazy film. <laughs> well, I don't think they acted in in any famous movies outside of Serbia. So any of them. Yeah. So this uh this guy plays Milan in this film, basically the main character. Then there is uh, Nikola Koyo playing Velia, Serbian actor and producer known for this film and We Are Not Angels and Parada and a bunch of others. Don't know if this rings a bell to Mladen. Yeah, yeah, watch those movies. Okay. Do you have any favorite Serbian movie? I I don't really. I, the thing is, I don't really watch a lot of Serbian movies. And this one is an exemption. Maybe like 10 more that, that I watched in my entire life. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. Well, there was one Serbian that commented that and corrected me that there actually isn't really a Serbian film industry yeah. to speak of. But, but uh, yeah, we are kind of the biggest indie. I mean, neighborhood like the crowds okay. or the Muslims don't really have any movies, or at least the ones that I know of. Do you have any idea how many Serbian films come out every year, more or less? <laughs> the one that that I hear of, like the couple, maybe I don't know. But those are the ones I hear of. There's probably some minor ones as well. Okay. Anything about the rest of the cast? Because I have nothing. I have just a bunch of names. Well, yeah, I mean, not sure what what could I say that that would that would mean anything for you guys. You probably haven't watched them in anything else, so maybe you can help us out, and maybe you can, we can watch something later. Uh, yeah, I think there's this one guy, Batajivojnovic. He plays the captain. The older guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's there's this one movie that that's really famous. At least uh, that's what I heard. Of. I haven't really watched it uh, <laughs> ever. It's called uh, Walter Defense Sarajevo. Have you heard of that? Uh, I think it's really, really famous in China and that it gained like major cult following there. Okay. If you decide to watch another Serbian movie, maybe go for that one. Yeah, or the, or then you can just drop a few chosen titles on our Facebook page. Yeah, definitely. I'll do that. I mean, uh, you can watch the one that that your colleague just mentioned, the, the one from Nikola Koyo, We Are Not Angels. That's a fun movie. And it's not hard is this one or complicated or controversial so we can have fun with yeah. that one okay well well that's pretty much it because as like henrik i basically know nothing about serbian films well apart from this film now so would it be seen by scene at this point henrik i would say that that's the route we have to take okay so this is the part of the podcast where we usually go to film more or less scene by scene just looking at it and commenting on what we find interesting and so forth so if you want, you can open the film right now and... Yeah, I have, I have it open. Perfect. Interesting, by the way, that the subtitles are burned to the image <laughs> in this release. We started off with a ceremony, apparently opening the cave of this film. Yeah. It's... By Tito? Yeah, I, I think he, he should be representing Tito. I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I think he is represent. Even though you have a picture of Tito there and he doesn't look like that guy, but... Of course, of course, but uh, and the the guy in in the scene is named differently. I'm not sure what's his name, Jamal or something like that. But yeah. he should be Tito. Yeah. Once again, for our listeners, the communist leader of Yugoslavia. On, on this scene, can either one of you tell me where the tunnel here is supposed to be located? I think it's in Herzegovina. I'm not sure. Yeah, this Brotherhood Unity Tunnel, as it's called. Oh, you mean you mean this? I'm I'm not sure if that's the same tunnel from the movie, but if it 
is uh, I think it's the somewhere in the in the southern region of public service It's getting a bit to the history department again, but do you think there's anything special about this tunnel? Like is it the Brotherhood Unity Tunnel as described in this film? I, I mean I don't have any inside knowledge, but I think I don't I think that's just metaphor. I don't think that's that's really has any connection yeah. to reality. I think it, it's just a tunnel that wasn't finished. I could be wrong, but I think they just like uh I mean since it was based on true events, there was this tunnel and they just made up a story around it. And I don't think it was special by anything else other than that event. Already we have some comedic elements here. Once uh, he cuts his hand, the blood is spilled in extreme quantity to the face of the little girl. Yeah, I think so. it's 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 pretty straightforward metaphor for like Tito's rule and the nationalist tensions. It existed even back then, but he would just like suppress it and like uh, cover it with with that brotherhood and unity team. Right. As you can see here, uh, he he spills his blood and then. Then it's it's like an awkward silence for a couple of seconds. Then they just roll this folk music and everybody are happy, even though the blood is still there and it's just being neglected. Right. That's an interesting take because the way I read it was that it was trying to symbolize the coming hostilities and the coming war that we see later on in the film. Like in that moment when they are opening the tunnel, they are celebrating sovereignty and unity and it's supposed to be this nice moment where where we all kind of come together and then there is that spilling of blood kind of a showing that in the horizon in the future even though now we celebrate coming together in the future there is going to be hostilities and more blood to be spilled yeah that was kind of how i took it yeah, you can look at it like that, definitely. But this is how I looked at it. Like the, even during Tito, where everybody acted like it was all great and all perfect, everybody loved each other. I think even then there was this nationalistic tensions that were just suppressed by him. But then yeah. again, I, I could be wrong. I mean, it pretty much comes down to individual perception. I just read it as something that uh, just suppressing the reality of the situation in a communistic setting. Yeah. Well, this whole film is centered pretty much on the two friends, the Bosniak and, and the Serb, or what would be the best way to describe the... Would we, would we call him Serb, or... Yeah, yeah, Bosnian Serb, or Serb, whatever you want. Alright, so we start with their childhood, and they stare at the tunnel, and they're talking about the ogre, or in other words, a man-eating giant, kind of a fairy tale reference. Yeah. And uh, this was... Kind of the reason why I was so hung up on asking you guys where the tunnel was supposed to be located. Because at this point of the film, there is first time they bring up the notion of the ogre, the imaginary giant. And every time the ogre is mentioned, it's kind of being brought up as someone who is supposed to be deeper into the tunnel and coming from the other end of the tunnel and i i was kind of curious on where that other end was supposed to be located in so what was the region where the ogre was supposed to come from what what do you mean i mean uh, the tunnel has two ends yeah logically like that that's how tunnels work and the, the kids are on the other end looking deeper into the tunnel 
and saying that somewhere closer to the other end is an ogre. I don't think it's a long tunnel. It's it's a short tunnel, so I don't think it really. It's not like it it, it starts at one territory, then it ends in another another one. I think it's pretty much the same territory. It's maybe a mile long or something like that. I'm not seeing the thing you you're seeing here that meaning, but I could be wrong. I don't think it matters. Yeah, or then I can be wrong just as well. I mean, I never thought about it. I never figured that matters, but you could be onto something. I don't know. <laughs> what about the ogre itself? Do you see some inherent symbolism here that we should cover? I, I don't, when I think about it, the first thing that comes to mind is probably, I don't know, nationalism. Because, like, two friends, they like each other. They don't care about which nationality the other one belongs to or religion. And then there's this ogre there who's threatening to come out and devour all that love and brotherhood and unity. So it could be symbolically nationalism. Yeah. When it comes to, by the way, the success of this film, it's interesting to point out that this was very favorably received in the United States, which could be kind of a surprising. Yeah, but because the director took that path where he didn't side with the Serbs or Muslims, he, he, he took the path of like having a yeah. neutral neutral movie. That's probably the reason why it was received well in the U.S. And, and also because I think the director loves the American cinematography, and so he tried to implement a bit of it. And that also probably contributed to why the Americans loved it. I mean, liked it. There's some beautiful countryside shots when we explore this two friends later in life when they're playing uh, basketball yeah. together well with the pig in the background this gives like a very non-urban, very villagey vibe throughout this film yeah, interesting thing about doesn't really relate to what you said but a, a little bit does uh, since since they were filming the movie during the war they, they literally had to smuggle in all of the equipment and stuff like that since 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 it was uh, recorded in in Bosnia or Republic of Srpska, they had to smuggle it through the border, everything like cameras and stuff. Okay, interesting that they would be so determined to get some you know village or countryside landscapes from volatile regions because well you would think that you would get the same effect filming in easier locations. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I think they 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 valued the authenticity a great deal. <laughs> 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 I guess so. But uh, that still is pretty brave from them. And yeah. Brave, brave filmmaking. <laughs> definitely. So it's the first day of war at the same time. We have a lot of humor going on. There is this, uh, what I perceive as uh, some kind of a... There's a guy who lives there with his family. And they have packed up all their shit and they're ready to leave. And of course the husband of the family says that, no, we're just going to help somebody with the move, but we're not going anywhere, I swear. Yeah, that's how things went. Then remember fa- my father telling me about it, like, people were just, like, smelling that, it, that the war is brewing and it's gonna start, and they were just, like, before it actually started. And then you had people like those two friends who, who thought that it could never happen, but it did, did happen. Do you think that Tito artwork in his car has anything to do with the fact that he's leaving? Oh, I, I, I never, I never noticed that. <laughs> Literally. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, they go. These kind of situations must be like perfect brewing grounds for conflict. But in this case, they just don't care. They just leave. Yeah. Then we get the first hospital scene. Interesting storytelling. 
Yeah, that, that's also a kind of a storytelling that you can see often in American movies, right? Well, I guess. I guess it took me a little to figure out, like, to connect all the faces because in the hospital he's with the short hair and all bruised up. But okay, so this is like covering the whole story from three different time periods, at least. Yeah, yeah. And then a bunch of flashbacks in between. Yeah, which kind of happened randomly. Yeah. Not in any sort of order. I'm not sure if all of them really have some kind of a deeper meaning, but uh, contributing to the mood and the atmosphere. Yeah. From the hospital it gets to a scene where they're in the burning house. Somebody calls the phone and the soldier answers it. A lot of dark humor going once again. Yeah. Let's see what's the translation here. Hello, who's that? Hello, Camille. <laughs> Camille, is that you? Answer me. Yeah, it's pretty much just dark humor. I don't think there's anything specific here. Yeah, there's something goofy that the other soldier responds. He takes over. Is Camille there? Yes. <laughs> Camille, yes, he's here. And there's a shot outside of the window. The soldier is looking at the dead body and he says that Kamil is busy chopping wood. Yeah. So <laughs> this is the kind of stuff throughout this film. Definitely these are not the kind of jokes that would be unreasonable or siding on any side. It's just something that you could throw into any war movie, into pretty much any situation. Nothing bad about this, at least at this point. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that's pro-Serbian or anything like that. Yeah. It also works as a small humane moment on the soldier's end. What do you mean? Well, the person calling is someone close to Camille. Yeah. A friend or relative or something like that. And the soldiers at that moment, of course, could tell the caller the truth. That Camille lies outside and has a bullet in his head. <laughs> Sorry, caller. Camille is dead, but instead they lie to the caller and tell him or her that Camille is okay and he's chopping wood. Maybe giving that lie is more humane and nicer than to give the hard facts that the person you are trying to reach can't get to the phone because he's very dead at the moment. <laughs> it's very interesting to hear your viewpoints on stuff from this movie because like, as well as those other things you mentioned, I never saw it like that. Like, it's really nice to hear something different than what I always thought. I mean, when I watched the scene, I always thought they were just messing around. They weren't really being humane. They were kind of messing around with the caller. And uh, except for that guy, the professor, I think they call him, no one really cares about the fact that the child is dead or that his family is calling. Okay, because I never got that idea also. I'm more like Henrik in this situation, that I got the feeling that... Uh, that's the best possible thing that the soldier can do under the circumstances. Oh, like, what are you going to do? At least he answers the phone and says something. Yeah, but, like, uh, uh, my first notion when, when he wants to take over the phone is that he wants to mess with her. At least the character of Nicola that that's his character. He likes to mess around. That's that dosage of surreals that the movie has. And mm. you can see it in many scenes. I don't think it has to be either bad or good. It's just kind of fun. Not really realistic, but should yeah. be fun. Yep, I mean, choking around and, you know, telling jokes even if they are rude. And even if the fun you are having can be mean. Having fun and telling jokes is also a coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah. When thinking from like a director or a screenwriter perspective, I would think that if your goal is to make the film most appealing at this moment, I think the humor that you find here, or the whole feeling of the entire scene works the best if there is no 
bad intention or maybe even joking around in this scene. Just that the situation gives you the feeling. But especially that character who takes over the phone, Veda, he, it's really ac- accentuated. His, him using humor as a defense mechanism, coping mechanism, against right. the monstrosities of the war he's in. Yeah, mm, there's a bit of a Muslim hunt going on, or at least that's how I <laughs> typed it. Which scene? In the scene where Milan loses his temper and shoots the guys that are saying all kinds of discriminatory things outside the store, which is... Those are Serbs? Yeah, my take also was that they are Serbs and not Muslim. Yeah, they're definitely Serbs. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah. this is this is more, instead of Muslim hunt, this is Milan shooting them because he yeah. disapproves... Yeah, they're, they're war profiteers. These three guys using the war and using the situation as a way to rob and loot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the point was the Serbian guys are looking for Muslims, yeah. And then Milan loses his temper. They're not really I, looking for Muslims. They're mostly looking to loot. I mean, if they come across Muslim, he's not going to have a good time. But I think the, the, the main purpose of the scene is to show that they're the looters, they're the bad guys, and Milan is the, the righteous guy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because there's the scene with the uh, his mother and him before he leaves for the war or what looks like that in their yard. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, they come across as these Serbians and... They say that they are looking for for Muslims, at least in the subtitles. Could be, I don't really, really remember all of the lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they can say that, but in the end, here, looking for Muslims in this particular scene... It doesn't make sense, because Muslims are already gone, and people that did that, uh, looters, they weren't really looking to fight, but just to loot, so it yeah. wouldn't be natural for them to, to be looking for Muslims to fight, they're just looking to score some easy money and items. Yeah. And in this sense, this kind of gives equality to the message of the film because, well, it's a Serbian killing Serbians now. So, you know, this is definitely not out to make a strong statement against Bosnians or yeah. for Serbians or any of that. No, I mean, in here the looters are Serbian, but also the guy who actually takes umbrage with the looting and who disapproves the looting very strongly and even violently is Serbian also. So it shows you kind of the two ends of the situation, the looting and then those who simply are fighting a war in the end. Yep. Yeah, he's a great example of someone who doesn't really want fighting a war, but he kind of has to, and he hates it. And he hates everything that war brings with it. And then there's the, uh, what I understand is uh, some kind of a prostitute that, takes an interest in adolescent male reproductive organs. <laughs> yeah, I always hated that scene because it's terrible acting. Oh, okay. I couldn't see that. But must be like he lost in translation. Or Well, when you look at her, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but I, I think she was like known whore or something like that. Okay. I could be totally wrong about this, but... Well... Or she was just, she was just a singer that was considered to be promiscuous and something like that, but... I don't really, really like her, even though this is kind of a legendary scene and everybody knows about the scene and the phrase Vidi Chune Prava Pionirska, but I, don't really, I never really liked it. Yeah, also outside of the acting, simply as a scene, it is kind of an uncomfortable scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it should be, I guess, obvious what are the, like, the motivations of the characters here, but it's still kind of uh, challenging to my brain in the sense because you don't see this every day you can see males having this 
pedophile tendencies, but females having such tendencies, that's the less seen aspect, and it, that's either what happens here, or then it's just that the boys were interested in seeing something from the lady. Either way, it's really creepy. I think it's the latter. Like, the only purpose is to show that boys being boys and having interest in stuff like that. Yeah. But I think they could have found someone better for the role of the whore. <laughs> I mean, probably many would disagree with me, because it was kind of iconic scene, but I don't like it. It's just another scene that I'm not big a fan of when they're driving in that car and they get stopped in the mud and then they walk out and like he's throwing mud at him, the other guy. I think it's after that scene with the whore. Yeah. I don't find it incredible. Like I could be maybe too strict, but I don't like it. I don't know. I, I, in a way, I share your opinion on the matter because I also was somewhat alienated by some of these flashbacks, the two guys being friends and the two guys being kids. I Watching this movie, I felt that there were maybe one or two scenes like that too many in the film, and they kind of break the pace of the movie for me. Yeah, I mean, I just don't find it incredible. I mean, I, I get the point of the scenes and why they're there, but... Yeah, and there's a very strong contrast between the moods of these aspects of them being friends and with the rest of the film, where majority of the film is extremely hard-gripping war drama, and then you have these very comedic flashbacks, which are full of funny antics. Yeah, that was probably their main intent, just to be funny scenes. I mean, I, I, I can go around and try to find some deeper meaning about it. Knowing, I mean, I don't know him and not so much his work, but this director, he has a tendency to make scenes like this. I mean, he has more serious movies, of course, but like, it seems like to re- that he really likes American movies and he's trying to implement a lot of stuff from them in, in his movies. There is this one scene where we have a lot of indiscriminate shootings and the Serbians go to this building block and this one young guy just shoots one guy that he suspects is in the closet and it's revealed that the boy or girl or whoever's in the closet dies. But then we have uh, this uh, wall mural or spray painting Serbia versus Tokyo. There's also one later that says Bosnia versus Tokyo. What's the story behind this? It's not versus, it's up until Tokyo. Like, uh, it implies that the borders of Serbia are from here to Tokyo, like, you know, like the Serbia is that big, or or, or it's going to be that big when we conquer it. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, this is something that we got screwed over by the subtitles. It says Serbia versus Tokyo, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, in the English subtitles in the card we have, it says Serbia versus Tokyo. I I mean, it's definitely not versus. I could be wrong about uh, the border thing. I know it's a phrase that, that that originated back in the 90s. Would have something to do with Red South Belgrade winning the European Cup, if you know about that. No. Like, no. like, uh, like in 91, uh, I think, well, I'm pretty sure Red Star from Belgrade Football Club won the Euro Cup and also the International Cup. That happened in Tokyo. Could have something to do with that. But it's definitely not versus. So it's either this or Serbia being up to Tokyo in terms of borders. <laughs> And this okay. is why we need guests on this podcast, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Very good. But it comes down to that. Like, Serbia is that big. Could be literally, physically to Tokyo. Or could be, like, just in terms of, of 
winning a European Cup in football to Tokyo. <laughs> okay, well, that's interesting. Really. The the signature, I mean, the, the picture of three fingers. That's for the Holy Trinity. I mean, that that's the original meaning: the God, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But now right. it's being seen as like Serbian nationalistic salute, something like that. Milan goes to this bar slash somebody's house and he's very very angry that somebody just died his mother died the guy in the bar the owner which we will later on find out he's a, is also a war profiteer and looter tells him that the, the muslims came in during the night they swam across the river and got in the village and killed his mother and he's asking yep. what did they do to her and this fella is avoiding to answer and then he completely ignores the american journalist Yeah, and think he goes to to dig up the grave and to see if she was desecrated in some way. I, I think. All right. Yeah. I think that's the purpose of that. Okay. Yeah. I'm interested. I did a subtitle translate the Balia terms. Balia terms. That Balia term when uh, it's a der- derogatory term for Muslims. And was there a translation in the subtitle or just did it say Balia? You would have to point me to the right place so I can check it. Where would You remember the scene? Oh, okay, we're gonna get to it later on. There's a scene later on in the tunnel when Veda says, "Imagine the Balia." Okay, could have been something like bastards, but I'm not sure. Could be. Oh, then was it simply subtitled as Bosniaks? Oh, okay. Then then it wasn't accurate because it's kind of derogatory <laughs> term. Right. Well, we'll get to that. And there's this uh, Chetnik. Yeah. Uh, you, you see, there there's like three derogatory terms for each of these people. For Muslims, there's Balia. For Croats, there's Ustashe, and Ustashe was like that fascist movement during yeah. 1929 to 1940-something. For Serbians, the alleged derogatory term is Ch- Ch- Chetnici, or Chetniks, mm-hmm. which I think, not think I, I know they were they were Royal Army in the World War II. And I don't think any Serb finds that offensive at all. While, on the other hand, I think every single Muslim finds Balia derogatory. I think Balia stands for, like, a peasant or an uneducated man. Something like okay. that. Well, we have then shots of this guy that originates from the Ottoman Empire bunch. He's in the hospital. Yeah. And he has a weird cut in his face. It looks like a snake or something. Yeah, I never really paid attention to what it looks like, but could it have some meaning? Hmm. Interesting thing is that Milan, like, instantly decides that he's gonna kill him. And he doesn't really change his opinion, no, no matter what he relives through the flashbacks. Well, yeah, you know, sitting in the hospital, the hospital bed, it gets a little tiresome sometimes. What could be the better way to do some pastimes than to kill somebody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But then we get to the war scenes. People blow up. There's some funny and sad comments. You mean when they're about to get attacked? Yeah, when they're attacked and... Somebody of the soldiers says that my sister can't afford morning clothes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's too bad. <laughs> and <laughs> the village is explained to be Kurtalici. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's really a real village or just used in the movie. Could be, but I found that there is a similar name, village. Let me just Google that real fast. Yeah, yeah, apparently it's a real village, yeah. And it's in the municipality of Visegrad, the, the, the town I mentioned before, where the movie was shot. Okay, interesting. What I gather from the interwebs as the great Rich Hodger of this podcast. The film is filmed at least in Visegrad and Priepolje in Serbia. Yeah, Priepolje in Serbia and Visegrad is in Republika Srpska. Yeah. Then off to the cave we go. 
there we spend the rest of the movie pretty much, apart from the flashbacks and stuff. Their leader, Sumadi Nuts, doesn't answer the radio, unfortunately. And this is where the Bosniaks teasing the Serbs starts. Yeah, I guess you can make a point about these teasings that are kind of portraying Muslims in a, in a bad light, like some kind of hysterical maniacs. But then again, I don't know, not necessarily. It's just something that happens in war. Probably would be the same if it was the other way around, I don't know. Yeah, I was kind of surprised, uh, taken aback by the scene where we see the flashbacks, all the pictures from the 1980s when the young guys, the boys, are under a tree, and they look like they are dead. There's blood coming from their noses. They're just so fighting, it's... like, uh, playful fighting that kids do. But it's, I think it's also uh, exaggerated a bit, because, uh, like, if you're playfully fighting, you, you, you're not going to get nosebleeds, and it's not going to get that extreme. At least... From what I know, from my experience being a kid, there's fighting and there's like messing around. And if these guys having nosebleeds is messing around, then I, <laughs> I don't know. I had a different childhood. Yeah, yeah. I guess I had a pretty easy childhood, and I I don't remember any nosebleeds with my friends. <laughs> but well, yeah, it's clearly re- referring to like uh, not giving up and you know yeah, attitudes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I took it that that they really are fighting about something. Not that important, but like in a bigger sense. They're kids and they're fighting about something and basically anything kids fight about is not that important in the end. But to the kids, it's a huge matter. What's a huge matter? Well, whatever the boys are fighting in that scene. So you're saying it, it is a huge matter? It's not... I, I, I'm, I'm saying to them it's a huge matter. Oh. And it's not just fun and games at that point. I'm trying to say that to me, to you, and Kari, basically anyone who is adult, yeah, whatever they are disagreeing about, would not be that big of a deal. Yeah, I can see that, but uh, I don't see the point of that really. Like giving it that meaning, like it's probably that. But why, why do you think that's relevant? Well, it it goes to show that in the end they are both kind of uncompromising in a sense that. Neither one of the two refuses to give up and simply admit that to the other that, okay, you are right, simply in order to, you know, stop the fight. I mean, they are both willing to go to the end for their side, even as kids. Yeah, yeah. that's the point. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. This sounds fun. Like, uh, it's not only me throwing the ball at Henrik, it's two of us now. <laughs> 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 speedy, what is translated as speedy. The character uh, arrives with a truck inside the cave. Brizzy? Possibly. <laughs> yeah, he just arrives. I'm at that point. Hell of a lot of explosions. American is found in the truck. A, a lot of joking in their world, but yeah, uh, once again, showing the attitudes at that time. I think that's the point. Well, I think this is what we talked about before when we were in the recording. <laughs> that element of surrealism, but it's kind of far from a realistic depiction of what the situation would be because like no one would be joking around in such a situation or or, yeah. or being cheerful in a, in a situation where they're probably going to die. I don't know. I can actually kind of see that it comes down to an individual person, but I could see that some people would be making fun and lashing jokes at that moment. Uh, how can you see? Were you ever in a war or situation like that? <laughs> I've been not ever in a war. So if that says, I, I sincerely doubt that it would go anything like it goes in the depiction of this movie. Like they would joke around and 
Well, well uh, let's talk about the military service if you want uh, around those parts. In Finland, we have a mandatory military service, minimum six months. Still? Yeah, still. I don't know how it goes in your parts of the world. Yeah, Europe. we don't. We don't have it for like maybe five years. Something. I'm not sure, but for like a couple of years, okay. we don't have it. It's not a mandatory. You can volunteer to do it, but so you have a paid uh, military. Yeah, yeah, it's paid. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it went. It was until a couple of years ago that that it was mandatory in Serbia, but in Bosnia, I don't think it was mandatory. Not sure since when, but I know that like uh, some of us that uh, my hometown Zvornik is in the border. Like literally on the border, uh, there's a bridge that connects Serbia with Republika Srpska, and a lot of kids my age have uh, dual citizenship, like Serbia and Bosnia. And when we were turning 18, we were getting mail from Serbia about the mandatory military service, but we could not go because, like, we we just say we're we're in Bosnia now. So I know that it was mandatory in Serbia when it wasn't in Bosnia. There is a scene where one of the soldiers, unfortunately, I'm not really clear on all the names of the characters, but there is this slim character who always uses the headphones. And yeah, that's Speedy fella. <laughs> but it's yeah. Uh, is it Speedy who puts the headphones for somebody else? Anyway, there is this song that is translated as Helmut Kohl has a beautiful hole. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I have no idea about that song. I just know it mentions it, but I never really took the time to learn more about it. Yeah, Helmut Kohl is anyway a German statesman. Oh. Chancellor of Germany from 1982 to 1998. Then there's some flashbacks once again, or like a future flashes, or whatever. Chunkies visit the hospital, or what are translated as chunkies. Yeah, they are definitely chunkies. Yeah, anything that we should read into this? Why are they well, chunkies in the hospital? Yeah, I think they're, they're just his friends from the time before the war. He was a junkie, and they are his friends. They're making jokes like he has a good because he has a needle permanently in his vein, something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then there's that scene when Milan asks them which nationality they are, and they say, we're junkies. So that's their nationality. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Bosnians are torturing somebody named, is it Markan, over uh, a loudspeaker? I think, I think that's the, the fellow that was that was uh, riding uh, Serbia to Tokyo, and the fellow that accidentally killed that girl okay. or boy in that closet. They captured him, they're torturing him. Right. So that happens, and... Uh... There's a lot of kind of bonding and they have a lot of time and well, just to get back to the points that we were discussing earlier, like this, when they spend extended period of time in this cave, it's easy to see, it would be realistic that they would be joking around and talking this and that. Yeah, in a way. But then, I mean, you don't have a single person that's afraid to die here, I mean. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think this way of depicting things, sacrifice the realism of true demons inside of people when when they find themselves in such situations. I think people will be attempting some more crazy stuff or like, I don't know, maybe betraying their own group, something like that. It's the same thing for Borsniks. We don't see any of that, yeah. that kind of a human normal weakness. It's kind of a... There, there, maybe there should have been one or two characters that are afraid of dying. Actually, the yeah. guy who kills the guy or the girl in the closet Well, he seems to be genuinely frightened at that moment. Yeah, but he's a kid, I mean. Well, yeah, sure. I, yeah. I just took it as that they have been fighting the war so long that they have become so jaded. Yeah. That even though they are, in fact, afraid of dying, which eventually factors in in them kind of a breaking down emotionally as they are stuck in the tunnel, they, at this point, 
can hide that fear so that it does not come off so physically and it does not show up in their actions so directly. Yeah, can be a breaking point where you just don't care anymore. Yeah, you can make a point like that, but then again, the war has just started. I mean, it's not like they've been waging war for years. I think this, this is like 94. I think this, uh, yeah, they filmed the movie in 94, but this event, I think, took place in 92, if I'm not mistaken. If you look at the starting credits, there is a title that says that the year 94. I'm going to try and verify that. Yeah, but I'm still saying that it has titles where it says 94. When they get out of the, is it a helicopter or uh, something like that. What do you mean? Oh, you mean like during the movie? During the movie, yeah. I don't know. Of course, you know, on that notion, we are not exactly sure what has happened before they get off the helicopter. Like, we are not entirely sure what in where in the timeline the helicopter scene is. Which helicopter scene? I, I, I the, can't remember that. I guess Carly is talking about the first helicopter scene where, where the medical helicopter lands in the hospital in Belgrave. In the very beginning, Oh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, that, that's not the timeline I'm talking about. That's the end of the war, pretty much. But when you made a point about them waging war for so long that they don't even really care about that, you were talking about the scene in the tunnel, right? Yeah. And yeah. Yep. that scene is based on an event that took place in 1992 during the first winter war. I just found it. So they couldn't be really be fighting war that for that long because that's, that's the year the war started. So at best, they could be fighting for like half a year. And for some of the characters, it's like their first maybe even days on the front line. I don't know. Leza is one of the victims once again to bite the bullet, or actually a grenade, of himself. Throws the grenade, he's shot, and the grenade drops onto the ground. Just to get one of the victims, basically. Yeah, I, th- I think he gets triggered by the torture of, the, of Marco, and that's why he does it, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are some flashbacks once again. A guy in the truck with a German, bad-mouthing a German, thinking he's Swedish. Yeah, uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's more or less about bad-mouthing uh, Germans and Turks, and the, the guy is obviously a Turk. But this fella Lazar, since he's pretty much spent his whole life in like the inside of Serbia, he has no idea. He cannot deduct that this guy's Turk, which he obviously. But oh, the guy's a Turk, okay? Y- yeah, sounded like German. No, this guy's because because he he plays this song that's that's like obviously Oriental. I mean, it's it's the Turkish song. Oh and there's, yeah, yeah. I think there there are signs somewhere. Let me just see the scene. Yeah, you see, uh, when he's driving, there's a star and the thing that's on the flag of Turkey. Makes more sense, yeah. But he thinks that the guy's from Sweden because he probably saw the plates, and that's why he says, uh, how's, it, how's it going? <laughs> yeah. Demonstrators outside of the hospital is one of the main uh, future flashbacks. Yeah. There's a lot of chaos, yeah. Everything's burning, things aren't going quite well. Reading a book about burning places in the hospital, yeah. The guy with the, with the glasses. Uh, he's a professor, I think they call him. The professor is... Reading a quote from the book, but is it from the book that inspired the title of this film? It kind of could have been the case, because it, it was talking about pretty villages and the flames. Could be, I mean, I don't know, you mentioned that thing about that French book or something like that? Did you say something yeah. like that? Yeah. But, uh, I, I'm first first time hearing about it, so I don't know. Yeah. Voyage à bout de la nulle. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Then finally, Sumadinats makes contact, or is it Sumadinats? Uh, anyway, he says on the line that he's not able to help at this time. Yeah. And then he gets informed that his mother will be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
the thing goes on and on and on, and uh, one guy in the hospital almost dies in the other timeline. Ed, he, he eventually dies. He eventually dies. and Yeah, the nurse comes back and says for his tape recorder or whatever, he has it, uh, like he won't be needing it like that, so we know yeah. he's dead for sure. What was the stuff about the tape recorder? It's just these songs on the tape. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that goes to trash. And because of this death, then the best course of action is to kill the so-called Turk. And uh, it doesn't really work out in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're left to, like, debate why he doesn't kill him. Did he, like, in a moment opted against it? Or was he just physically lacking to... I don't know. Yeah, right. Interesting scene. You are so... Desperate to kill someone, you get out of your hospital bed, you catch a fork and try to kill someone. Yeah, then then he doesn't do it, so... Yeah. So the guys argue whether the journalist should be filming or not. They decide not. Then one guy explains that they say that they agreed yes. I think the captain just says not, but the rest of them think she should be filming. Or it oh. could be that, that Veda also says not. Uh, can't really remember every scene. One guy gives a piece of his mind to the old general when the camera is rolling. One guy says something about the oldest nation, that they are the oldest nation because they have the cultivated usage of utensils. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a myth that goes around in, in Serbia. Have you tried eating with your hands? It's kind of a... you get used to it. It's kind of fun. Depends on the food, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some you eat with your hands because it's easier. <laughs> if you're in, yeah. in your home, definitely, why not? <laughs> Have you traveled to, like, Morocco, or are you a much uh, of a traveler? Or? I've been to USA, been okay. a bit through Europe, but nowhere in Asia or Africa, or so just pretty much USA and Europe. Yeah, kind of the same for me, I've even just around Europe, because it's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, then there is a cow. Unfortunately, the cow ends up just lying there. Yeah, there's a hilarious scene there when, I mean, it gets me laughing every single time I watch the movie. The fella who's called Vidushka, the fork, if we're talking about the same scene. Yeah, yeah. he's naming his bullets by giving it Muslim names. And then the cow bells uh, come come in and he says Krava, which means cow. And then Veda yeah. says it's not really a Muslim name. That's, that's hilarious. Things escalate into drinking pee. Yeah. Well, that's one way to go about it. Definitely good for the environment. <laughs> that's the most important thing to care about when you're in the war. Yeah, somebody says that uh, of the soldiers that I had a beer five days ago, so no thanks. Yeah, then the journalist gets the notion that it's uh, sugar-free, so she just laughs and takes a sip. <laughs> There's a scene of when Muslims send uh, a Milan's school teacher, and they think she's wired with explosives. That's why they send her, and it's upon someone to take the responsibility of shooting her. And yeah, nothing else you can do when they shoot their own, but uh, they suspect. Uh, explosives which she apparently then doesn't have yeah it's funny how how the the american journalist who kind of stands for human rights and all that is the first one to to yell kill her shoot her something like that <laughs> so yeah. when, when, when her life is in danger she forgets all about everything yeah i guess or she was hungry pissed off wants to get out of there scared just a journalist yeah but since since you're a journalist you're kind of you're always having this moral high ground and in the scene, she she can't really support that <laughs> with how she acted. Yeah, considering that she's in the war zone, she's surprisingly out of control most of the time. We're terrified. But again, she was the one who, in her first scene, was calling back to the Geneva Agreement. 
and was using the Geneva Agreement as a reason why they should actually, why the Serbs in the cave should let her be and should not touch her. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't it then a bit hypocritical when later on she she screams? <laughs> yeah, that it very much is. And it kind of shows how quickly the journalist is in the end willing to forget the whole Geneva agreement when her life is on the line. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the funny thing is that I don't think she, she was wanted to, to stay there. She wanted for them to let her go. And they didn't want it because she would die. <laughs> and, exactly. And she, she soon realized that. Yeah. There's even one scene where the old guy, or, or the uh, captain, is about yeah. to... It first is framed as such that it looks like he's about to shoot the journalist, but no, the uh, Bosniaks are coming yeah. from behind. Then in a, another flashback, the kids are watching adults having sex, and during that, the comrade Tito is announced dead via the radio. <laughs> and the kids try to cry, but they can't quite yeah. get there. Yeah, that's an interesting scene. It, what it implies that all that love for Tito and all of that brotherhood and stuff is, is kind of imposed upon you. And yeah. when you're naturally trying to feel that, it's just not happening. Yeah, I think there's so many excellent scenes here that kind of encapsulate the, the times and the feelings. One soldier gets shot in the legs in his attack attempt. <laughs> then there's the fork incident, more flashbacks. Uh, one involves an amusement park. I don't know if you find anything of talking points about amusement park. Didn't that happen before? Yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah, I, I, I love that scene always. It, it kind of really brings you to that junkie world. I don't know. It always felt realistic to me, even though I, I don't really have any experience with drugs. <laughs> but I, I don't know. The, the, the carousel going around, it, it, it really kind of seems hopeless and I love that, you know, whenever I watch them. Yeah, I guess in the end, a lot of symbolism after all in this film. Well, there's that scene when, when he's begging for a shot from that dealer. And when he finally agrees to give him something in exchange for the watch. And the Buddhist guy wants to do it. And the dealer says, wait, wait, uh, not here, not in front of the children. And he laughs, which is kind of ironic since he hides the drugs where kids go to, to, to play around. Yeah. I'm not sure if you got that. Yeah, a lot of questions, but that's the kind of a movie that needs some answers from our guest who, thank God, came to this podcast episode. And there's this <laughs> uh, moment where the old man, the captain, says that he traveled 350 kilometers for Tito's funeral. And even though he realizes now what it was and how fake all of that in reality was, he still has this, this sentimental feelings about it. He still can't really let it go. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's kind of a more of an ironic moment when he finally takes the car when they get it fixed for... I don't know how they get it, get it fixed, but they do. Milan is an auto mechanic, I'm not sure if you got that from the movie. Okay. And he's working on, on the car for like some period of time. Yeah. He takes the car and uh, what at least sounded to me like some ironic quotes that... What was it? With uh, Tito, we can't fail, and he drives off. And it's not explained what happens then, right? Okay, he does. I think it's it's shown that like he gets shelled yeah. hard. I don't think he survives. Only two guys that survive are Milan and that professor fella, and Berzi who 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 dies eventually. Then there's uh, Milan in hospital. More people die. Journalist dies. Basically, she wants to get the camera, and then she yeah. dies because of that, which is kind of sad and hilarious. I mean, it could be a reference to 
how the real story doesn't get shown uh, like into the world because she she's there she, she recorded everything but it doesn't get shown to the world due to some strange turn of events and then some different story gets shown i don't know could be that at least that's how i i saw it which would go to to support the pro serbian movie theory but i don't know and in the end the young kids they see the people massacred in the cave or what appears to be cut like this that it suggests that so what does it mean that they see these bodies in 1980 what do you mean well the movie ends with the with people massacred en masse or you see the bodies and then you see the kids and the one is clanking oh. the wood and then they run away from the cave so yeah I, i don't think there's anything deeper than the obvious there like what the war brings yeah i guess like yeah yeah like a artistic depiction of okay here's the end result of the war yeah, yeah the and is a war definitely yeah and the movie ends with the scene where the friends are Uh, apparently during the first day of war wondering will the war ever erupt and milan says what war that's the movie yeah wasn't ever sure about that scene so this scene and also the scene where, where the movie starts when they're talking and he's asking him if the war is gonna happen and he's saying yeah i'm not really sure what, what does that mean why is he saying yes in the first place and then he says what war in the end right i took it simply as a naivety from the side of the two friends. Maybe it was just something funny that you can put into the end, you know. Yeah, but uh, why does he keep saying that it's gonna happen in the first scene when when they're talking about that? Well, that's an interesting point. Yeah, if you put them back to back. Yeah. I think he, he asked him a couple of times, do you think it's gonna happen? He says, yeah, why? He says that. Maybe that this discussion in the very end is something that took place before what we saw in the beginning of the film. Uh, could be though though it seems that it's after because like in the beginning they're playing basketball and they sit down it seems to be linear, linear like it's following true the same true. scene so this would probably be something that what what happened after they got drunk yeah also there's maybe something interesting i can i can mention here about that's playing the muslim in that scene mm. i think uh, when they were filming those scenes he was like, wasted constantly i i read that somewhere not sure where <laughs> about him what alcohol <laughs> can maybe bring to your attention some inaccuracies that you probably haven't spotted i mean there's no way for you to spot it like uh, the way milan talks he, he speaks in an accent that's that's really that people speak in sarajevo and th- there's this notion that pretty much everyone in bosnia should speak like that but that's nowhere near true like, milan shouldn't be speaking the way he speaks so that's kind of an inaccuracy Okay, yeah. Also, there's one scene in the hospital where Milan asks the professor which team did he root for before the war. Teams are Željeznica and Sarajevo. And those are two teams from Sarajevo. And seeing that the professor is from Manja Luka, he would never, ever cheer for any of those two teams because those teams are kind of a local thing. So I'm not sure if, if this is interesting for you or... <laughs> it is. It is. It, it is. It is. It's it's kind of inaccurate because that would never happen in the real world. I mean, the 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 fellow from Banyaluka would never cheer for either of those teams. He would probably cheer for a team from Banyaluka or for one of those two big teams from Belgrade, Red Star and Partizan. Hmm. Also, there's there's a scene where the tank with Serbians on it has a Dixie flag on it. I'm not sure if you spotted that. The Confederate flag. Right. 
which also kind of doesn't have a place in the movie. I don't know why would Serbian tank carry a Confederate flag ever. I was wondering that myself also when I It doesn't make so, any so sense. Scene. Even if you want to make a stretch comparison to USA Civil War, it's still Serbians wouldn't be the ones with the Confederate flag because we, we're m- more close to black people in terms of being slaves because Ottoman Empire had Serbia under rule five centuries. So, I mean, I don't really see the sense in the Confederate flag, but it's probably something else that the director wanted to bring to, from like, I don't know, America. Anything about the music? You might know some individual tracks by name. Yeah, there's that song that goes a couple of times in the tunnel. When they played for the first time uh, Vella, that fella decides to go dancing with the song and kind of shoots at the Muslims with, with his pistol. You know that scene. He gets moved by the song and yeah. he dances to it, disregarding his own life. Absolutely. That's kind of a famous song here, but I mean, I'm not a big fan. It's, it's a solid song, but... Premiere and box office, critics and so on. Do you know how much money this movie made? I have no idea, but I know it was received well. Yeah, and uh, the budget was two million, as I found out. I know they they had to stop the filming somewhere near the end because they were yeah out of money. Like they needed to film for like twenty percent more to finish it. So I think they not sure when they actually finished the movie. But I think the premiere was nineteen six. Released in May 96. Yeah, I remember. And they restarted the shooting in November 95 and finally finished the production in early 96. Yeah. There was a Shlomo Schwarzberg of Box Office Magazine. He called some of the film scenes worthy of Vonnegut at his most hallucinatory, concluding overall that the film is somewhat cliched and... A little more pro-Serb than necessary, but packs a genuine punch. I think that would be relatively good description. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a cliche, and it's a bit towards the pro-Serbian side. But all in all, I think the director tried to stay as, as neutral as possible. And there was somebody who was definitely not so supportive. There was a former soldier in the army of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Danis Tanovic called Pretty Village Pretty Flame, well-made, but ethically problematic due to its uh, shameful portrayal of the war in Bosnia. So that was his view. Kind of in, in the complete opposite end well, of the majority. Yeah, Interesting. The, you always have sides who don't think highly of of the movie, especially if they're involved personally on some level. Yeah. It's, it's a decent movie if, you, if you're not really going much into depth and, like, picking some bad things. It's a decent movie, definitely. Yeah, with uh, pretty great cinematography. Especially, I mean, when you're taking into account that it was made during the war and, and it was really difficult to make it and it, it was difficult to stay unbiased and stuff like that. And considering still the quality of this film, I'm really kind of surprised that it didn't get even nominated for the uh, Oscars as the uh, Serbian contender. But is it really that surprising then if we're talking about the U.S.? Ticket got some rewards. But yeah, I mean, definitely yep. not, not not to be expected to be nominated for Oscars. Are even yeah. you know, foreign movies nominated for Oscars? Yeah, yeah, they are. And then... oh, I mean, there's a special category or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, the best foreign film category, which yeah, is pretty unfair combination of basically every nation's 
one pick of the film which they want to send to the Oscar race. And it's yeah, it's pretty absurd when you have like 80 contenders or however there may be, and you know you get just one of those winning yeah. the Oscar. Well, the Oscars are a joke nowadays. Yeah, literally, literally a joke. Why? Especially now. Well, uh, last year, what was that movie that that won the Oscar the, with with the girl and that creature, that water creature? Yeah, Shape of Water. Yeah, that that the movie is terrible. It's it's so bad. It's <laughs> not even funny how bad that movie is. I watched it. I barely found strength to watch the entire movie, and then I find out it's it won the Oscars. Like, and especially when when you had that that great movie, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, r- running. Well, The Shape of Water. You know, from the starting point, I wasn't interested. You know why? Because the title sounds like like watching the grass grow. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> By the title. Um, there, are, there are many things I'm willing to kind of go with on this podcast, but bad-mouthing Guillermo <laughs> del Toro, I will just not stand. The title. The title. The Shape of Water. Watching Grass Grow. Same thing. Is there a movie watching Grass Grow? Uh, there's something similar, but that's not the point. <laughs> yeah, I just know The Shape of Water is terrible. At least what, what I thought of it. And I see this year bunch of bullshit movies are nominated as well. There's that Black Panther, I'm not sure what else. Yeah. Alright, let's get to the quick categories. What's your favorite performance of this film, if you would have to choose only one? Mlad and go ahead. Definitely the guy that plays Veda, Nikola Koya. Okay. At least, I mean, he's funny. <laughs> Him and Speedy, definitely. Well, maybe kind of a, a, hard to say for me, because I don't speak a language, and but I'm just gonna be extremely boring and just say Dragon Yellowglitz uh, playing Milan. He's the lead actor, he has some great performance moments. He's being the face of this war, kind of reminds me of Apocalypse Now in points. Like how he depicts a moment just with his face that is kind of not saying a lot, but still saying uh, quite a bunch. That's true. For me also this was extremely hard one to pick because it was easily a tie with almost the entire cast but you know if you once again must pick just one i i guess i will also go with dragon here yeah what's your favorite scene yeah i would have to go back to that one one what i mentioned already when the guy called vidushka fork is naming his bullets and the cow appears and he says cow and Veda says, well, that's not really a Muslim name. That really gets me every time. Yeah, I was going to somehow gravitate towards the scene in the quiet, uh, the beginning of the film where the soldiers go to the burning house and they see the guy kind of sort of quote-unquote chopping wood outside. And I don't know, that's just kind of stuck with me, so I'm going to say that scene. Okay, on my end, that would be shooting the teacher. I felt that that was perhaps the most harrowing scene of the film. I also like the moment when the journalist finally loses it in that very same scene and just, you know, starts yelling that the teacher yeah. should be killed. Yeah. Any favorite quotes, Mladen? There's this great quote. I mean, it's not deep or anything, but it, it's it's funny. Uh, in terms of, of, of Veda's character, when he's about to kill himself, he says, do you want me to read it in, in native? Or... Yep, please. He says, uh, I kad mi dođete na sahranu i vidite kilometre pičetine, shvatit ćete ko je bio čikavelja, svakoj sam dao po bonu. And it translates to, and when you come to my funeral and you see all those miles of pussy, you realize who was Uncle Velja. 
I gave each and every one of them a candy. And it's, it's kind of funny. And For me, it's again in the same scene where the guy chopping wood is outside. It's a quote. They say war brings out the best and worst in man. What's the best? End quote. <laughs> That's a good point. Anyway. Yeah. I would actually go from Del Velia's last moment. The line, real Hollywood. This is worth living, at least for now. Oh, yeah. Great scene. When he says, no, I'm just joking, right? In the end, just joking, bye. But, you know, that, that very last moment is my pick for the favorite kill in, <laughs> in, in the film. You guys have a, a <laughs> section for a favorite kill? Yeah, because, you know, Laden, we're coming from the horror movies. We started with horror movies in this podcast, and it just kind of stuck like... yeah. I saw you guys had like 10 shows about <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> yeah, it was our desperate attempt to get some listeners and <laughs> milk everything of its worth of the moment when the new Halloween was about to come out. It backfired completely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was to be expected, I mean. I was going to listen to 10 podcasts about a horror movie. <laughs> well, at least we got our kind of, a, as I said, hardcore training during those periods because we were getting quite bored of ourselves uh, <laughs> talking about the same movies at least me you know but uh, it was fun some of the movies are so bad that it's really just funny my favorite kill <laughs> well i guess the teacher uh, and mladen i'm not sure how <laughs> how, how to <laughs> proceed with this uh, favorite kill i don't know <laughs> extremely uncomfortably would be my, <laughs> my recommendation <laughs> my thoughts exactly <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe when Dad Bujerska uh, fell like a tunnel and he thinks that the Muslims left, and then he turns around and looks above, and they are still there, and they shoot him. Yeah, that's there's, a good kill. There's, <laughs> yeah, that 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 was a cool scene. It's a clean, good kill right there. <laughs> first image that comes to mind. Well, and uh, no, first of all, we're going to turn our attention to somewhere else. So. We can pretend that we are looking at this movie now with fresh eyes, with a total detachment of the entire movie for a while. So, Mladen, what's your favorite food in Serbia or Bosnia? Uh, there's this this thing called satarash. It's mm-hmm. a mixture of, like of peppers and onions, and pretty much comes down to peppers and onions, and you mix it and you and you kind of fry it, I think. It's really awesome, especially when my mom makes it. Not sure about how, how does it taste in restaurants, but it's awesome. Okay, I can give you the picture if, you, if you're interested. Yeah, recipes and everything. Yeah, please, please do. Uh, yeah, it looks. Henrik, we have to check out if we have any like uh, Serbian or or Bosnian or Yugoslavia type like uh, restaurants. Yeah, do you guys have those? There? I have no idea. Most likely not, because we really are the ass end of the restaurant world. <laughs> but so, now that I have successfully reset everyone's minds, first image that comes to mind from Lepasela Lepogode. And then, what image best exemplifies this film for you? Um, I'm gonna have to go back to that scene that I mentioned already. Where the guys, I, I, I might be boring you with, with this, repeating this constantly, but that scene <laughs> where, where, where the guy's naming his bullets and uh, he's just yep. listing Muslim names and then he says cow and the way that comes in, that's that's really the first scene that comes to my mind always, always when I think about a movie. And it, oh. it does kind of exemplify this movie, not the war itself, but this movie, like, where war was portrayed a bit a, a bit in a surreal way. Yeah. Well, pretty nice pick. Mm, for me, 
when it comes to down to it, what, what I think about when I think about this film, it's obviously they, they gave for me just that they are there and maybe the kids when they first time come across the cave. So it kind of just gets your interest going on what's going on with this cave. Yeah, that's memorable. Yeah. Henry? To me, it would be in the very start of the film that first scene or the scene with the first military hospital scene. Where you see the belly of the helicopter, and then it opens up, and the camera f- follows inside the helicopter, and there are wounded people lying on stretchers and arms reaching out. Like in my opinion, that was the most kind of a hellish image of the entire film, and really nicely summed up the for me the feeling of this movie. Sorry, I'm still trying to figure out that that scene. I- I'm not sure if you watched some other edition of them, or if there is any other. I, I, I really can't remember that scene you're talking about with a helicopter. <laughs> okay. Well, it would be five minutes and 45 seconds into the film. I'm going to try and find it later on, but it could be that I really never paid attention to it. Yeah, yeah. That I don't even know it exists. <laughs> it could be... It's just a few seconds long, so it's extremely easy to miss. You blink and you missed it. Probably. What to? Yeah, sorry, I'm running a bit because uh, I have a engagement in a restaurant <laughs> in a while. No, no, but we I... have already gone on for fucking forever once again regarding <laughs> this episode. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. So uh, that's true. What took Mladen out of this film? Was there anything? Was there something so silly or so stupid that you thought, ah, ah, I'm better off watching my watch at this particular moment and screw this film? Oh, not really. I mean, every time I watched it, yeah. I, I really, I, well, well, yeah. I, I mean, I was paying attention. Except for the yeah. helicopter scene, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Same for me. I was, yeah, I was clued from beginning to end. In the first viewing, there was so much information, so many terms which we don't even probably have time to cover in this podcast, but uh, sometimes I was a little bit lost, but yeah, no, nothing that would kind of slip my attention. Yeah, I also had no scene where I would start to look at my watch at any point. I felt that the carnival scene was a bit too surreal for my taste when compared to the rest of the film, but it wasn't that big of a moment that I would have started to look at my watch and think that how long is this film still going on? And what pulled you in then, Mladen, to this film? Anything in particular? Well, I don't really know. I mean, as I said, I, it's a famous Serbian film, so yeah, it's not really a specific thing that, that pulls you in if you're a Serb. You just watch <laughs> it. <laughs> it's a must. <laughs> yeah, hard to pinpoint on my end as well, because the whole subject was so interesting. I just, I don't look at it as some highlight here, some highlight there. Quite solid film, actually. It is. So... Yeah, just one scene after another yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, well, Henrik. That damned helicopter once again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. I, I, I just can't get, you know, up and over that one moment in the film. Scissors of sacrilege. In other words, would there be anything that you would change in the film? God forbid. Mladen? Uh, maybe cut out those inaccuracies. I spoke about. Yeah. And maybe yep. add one character that you also mentioned into the tunnel that, that would be like really afraid of that and do some horrific thing that, that really showcases the human nature, the bad side of it. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have anything uh, specific. There were some scenes that I could not understand, but now that we have had the guest here in this podcast, I can get more context into this scene. So, in that sense, yeah, no. It's so, no, I wouldn't cut anything out. No. I maybe would have lost one or two of the flashbacks. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cutting back to the days before the war. But once again, you know, extremely kind of a minor thing in the yeah. film itself. We like to nitpick here. Would you, Mladen, recommend this film? You mean to, like, foreigners? For yourself. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I had fun watching it. and I, I mean, especially nowadays when it's a big shortage of good movies. It's just bullshit after another bullshit, so... Would you recommend it to foreigners, then? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. I, I, know, I don't know how you guys... You guys have fun watching it, or was it more like uh, preparing for the podcast and not so much fun? But uh, yeah, I find find a lot of humor there that is not controversial in my eyes in any way, and it's a really solid film and so many symbolic moments that uh, they just keep on coming one after the other. Yeah, definitely. And would I recommend this film? Of course, I would recommend this film. I will not make a comment whether this film is ethically problematic here or there. I'm not sure if I could even pick that up correctly, but it's certainly technically well filmed and has like culturally historical value. It gives you a different looking glass to the usual way this war is displayed, like as said a million times before. And there's always several sides to the wars. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is a Russian quote or not, but uh, duty has no sweethearts. And I take it that there are no sweethearts in war. Henrik, would you recommend Lepasella Lepagore? I most definitely would recommend checking out this film. I did not find it fun, as Maladen asked. To me, this was more horrifying and grueling to watch. I really got into the characters in this film. The choking they had did not distract my attention, and I kind of really got inside the tunnel when watching this film. Mm. And it's very well done. Cinematography, the soundtrack, the acting, in my opinion, through and through is very well done. So technically, this is a very good film. And it does portray a war that has way too little coverage on it and which has way too little media presentation given. So in that sense, I would say it is kind of even valuable to check out the film and... Even on its own right, this is a tour de force movie. Movie that really has an effect on you when you watch it. And if you give it a chance, I'm fairly certain that most people watching this will have a profound effect. Yeah, and I don't know if this was obvious for Mladen, but the reason that we chose this film as well right now was because it's uh, kind of close to the anniversary of the start of the war back in the days. Oh yeah. And, uh, Didn't notice that. Yeah, and in that sense, good to take a hard look at this this war. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Extremely complicated subject, as mentioned. And uh, who knows? We have had nothing but awesome visitors. So if we tackle any other films of interest, perhaps from Serbia, we'd be happy to have you back on. Sure thing. Great. I hope that this was an enjoyable experience <laughs> also for you. Yeah. Yeah, I really I really loved Henrik's insights into some of the scenes because they were totally different than what I 
had in my mind or I, I wasn't even paying attention to some other things. So yeah, it was really enjoyable. Henrik has an inherent talent of coming out of the blue just like that, some kind of points and articulate them very, yeah. very well <laughs> on the fly. Extremely complicated and uncomprehensibly. <laughs> All right. And thanks for the listeners. I hope uh, nobody is uh, horrified of the, the developments in this podcast lately. <laughs> <laughs> Except the host. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need therapy after this. No, just kidding. I'm fine. You can find us on Facebook. You can continue the discussion there. We'll open a thread where you can comment about your feelings towards the film or this podcast. Also on Twitter. You can find the episode later on on YouTube, and you can find some nonsensical nonsense on Instagram, as per usual, this platform provides. Yes, hopefully we did not offend anyone. Yes. We tried to be as unbiased, as fair to everyone, as humanly possible from our side. And if we did any horrifying mistakes here, please let us know immediately. <laughs> nah, you guys were good. <laughs> I'm probably gonna get, get all the heat if there is any. <laughs> well, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah, yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much again. And uh, Flick Lab signing off, unless Henrik has any ulterior motives at this moment. I think we could immediately start, you know, a deep discussion on the next horrifying acts of human cruelty. <laughs> Yeah, if if you have 15 minutes, Gary, how about we tackle the Holocaust, as we are? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How about that? Schindler's list next. Hopefully something easier next time. Well, we are going to talk about the Japanese animated legendary film Akira. Hope to join you then. Yeah, the film that actually has the looming shadow of two atom bombs and a violent inner cultural class looming over it. So, nice pics there, Curry. Thank God. And just to be fancy and uh, cultural, arigato gozaimasu. Flick Lab says bye-bye. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Bye. I'm still recording. Henrik is recording still. Yep. Still running. Great. Until it crashes and burns. (laughs) Uh, Which has happened more often than not with the audacity.